Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. So last week, um, I was in uh, New Mexico with uh, the fam. Um, actually, this guy right here, Ben, um, you guys may know Ben and Chelsea. They've been around Restore for uh, the whole time, five and a half, five and a half years, six years. Um, Ben's parents actually have a little cabin and a little kind of mountain community thing up in New Mexico, and they do this really cool thing. It's kind of a summer thing, right? Because most of the cabins are like fairly rustic, like they're not like year-round cabins, so you can't be there actually in the winter. But during the summer, it's this little community that comes together, and each week they actually have a pastor come in and preach, and then somebody come in and do worship. It's pretty cool. Um, we got hooked up because uh, Ben's mom schedules it, so it's not like I, I won a contest or anything. I just knew someone. It's nepotism, purely nepotism. Um, but we got to go up there and stay. They have a little cabin just for the preacher and his, his or her family. And you go and you stay there, and then you preach that week, and then you go back. And so it was really fun. It was a good time to get away. Um, my wife, Amy, she planned a number of really cool things. She planned one thing that was very outside of her comfort zone. And I was really shocked. She said, Zach, we're going to go to this cowboy ranch, and we're going to ride UTVs, which are like big ATVs, if you know what those are. And we're going to ride them around the side of a mountain. And I was like, that does not sound like something you would enjoy. <laughs> I'm really shocked that you want to do it. It sounds like something I would enjoy. Uh, but, you know, whatever, let's do it. Um, I think she was under the impression that we were going to be getting in the back of a UTV and then uh, somebody was going to be driving it, somebody else, like a professional person, was going to be driving it. But when we arrived, I walk up and I see it's a whole fleet. It's like 10 or 12 UTVs. And the leader is obviously in the front UTV. And then there's ours, a four-seater uh, just waiting for us. And so I turned to Amy and I said, I'm driving. She was like, no, you're not. I was like, no, I, I'm driving. She was like, no, the guy, he's going to come back here. He's going to drive ours. I was like, you think he's going to drive ours and just leave all the other people behind? She's like, oh my gosh, you're right. You're going to drive. And I was like, yeah, so uh, we put this picture up. This is what it ended up looking like there. There's the squad, Judah and Major and Amy. Um, that was when things were going well. Smiles were abundant early on. Here's what happened. We were uh, given very little instruction <laughs> by the, uh, the guide. He basically said, have you ever driven before? And I said, yes. And he said, then you're fine. Don't go fast. That was it. Don't go fast, right? So I thought, well, we may be meandering through some fields. We'll see some mountains, but probably won't go up on the mountains, right? But no, we immediately start going up the side of this mountain, right? And it's like rocks and it's crevices. I don't know if that's the right term, but like big things in the middle. I'm not really an outdoorsman. I'm more of an indoorsman. Um, so this is, you know, a little bit outside my comfort zone. But um, it, was, it was fun at first, right? 
Um, and then there was this one part where you kind of come around a curve and you're literally on the side of a mountain. It's like 200 foot drop and there's no railing. It is a foot on either side of the UTV. Um, I actually stopped and was like, what a view. And Judah and Amy simultaneously were like, keep driving, keep your face forward and keep driving. And I was like, yeah, okay, all right, here we go. Um, and so it was like a little touch and go there. Well, then we get past that part, things are going better. And then we come up, and, and so like I said, there's 10 or 12 UTVs in this whole ride. And so you're encouraged to stay at least five UTV links back from the one in front of you. But he said, you really, it should be like really like 20 or 30, because you want to kind of go your own pace, enjoy things. You don't want to be sped up from behind or speeding someone else up from the front. Um, and so the guide, we're like the, the second or third to last one. And so the guide is like, it feels like miles in front of us. Like we have no idea where he is. So we come around a corner and we see the UTV in front of us stop and the passenger jumps out and she kind of starts jogging. And we think she's going to kind of stop and take a picture because we're at this really scenic thing. But then we come around the corner and the UTV in front of them is on its side, right? Yeah. Um, and so I throw it in park and I tell Amy and the boys, stay there. I'm going to go see what's going on. It was on like a, a straight downhill. It was like tons of like sand and gravel. And so it was super slick. I actually like fell twice, like trying to get to the fallen over UTV. Um, I expected to find like a, a really rough scene, but I look inside. It's a family of four, a couple of teenage kids, and they're all okay. The, the, the teenage boy was driving. He's got a broken finger, like dislocated. Other than that, they were okay. So we help all of them get out. And then we set, we set to like setting the UTV up, right? And so I'm trying to give some kind of general instructions like, hey, let's move it over so when we put it up, it doesn't just roll down. Let's get like, as soon as we get it up, somebody needs to get in it so that we put it in park, right? And put the brake on and all that kind of stuff. And, but, but there's so much adrenaline going, especially from the family who's been in the accident that they just kind of come up and we lift it up and nobody's in the front seat. Right? Now, it's not rolling yet because we've kind of got a hold of it, me and this guy next to me who ends up being named Michael. I get to know him later. That's an important part of the story. Michael and I are kind of holding it down. And so I'm telling the, the, the dad of the car that flipped over, the UTV that flipped over, jump in the front seat and put the parking brake on so it doesn't roll. And he's like, I'm just going to put it in neutral and we'll push it backwards. And I was like, that's a horrific idea. Don't do that. Because like we're on an incline, so we can't push it backwards if it's in neutral. If you put it in neutral, it's going to roll down. He was like, no, nah, it'll be fine. So he walks around. He throws it in neutral. The, car, the UTV starts sliding. I'm like trying to hold it, um, but it obviously starts sliding away. And uh, so I grab Michael because he's kind of an older guy, and he's holding on like for dear life. So I kind of grab him by the collar, and I pull him back, and I jump back. The UTV goes straight down into a tree. If it hadn't gone into a tree, it would have gone off the side of a mountain. I mean, it was like one of the more insane thing that's ever happened to me. Now, fast forward, we put the family of four down. We say, we're going to go get the guide. We end up having two flat tires too. I mean, it was like a whole experience, <laughs> a whole experience. They end up being fine though. Now, here's what was incredible that happened. We get back to the cowboy ranch at the end. Um, this was after the uh, guide tells us how many people are currently suing them, which I was like, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> He was like, please don't sue us. There's a lot of people already suing us. And I was like, oh, no, okay, we won't. <laughs> so we get back to the cowboy camp thing, and um, the, the, the guy, Michael, that was next to me, he was with these two women, his wife and then his wife's sister, Kathleen and Jeannie. Now, put their picture up here. This is all of us. There's Michael, um, Kathleen, Jeannie, and then our family. This is the, the, the dinner that happened right after the UTV. So what happened was we get back and Kathleen and Michael and Jeannie are like, hey, we're going to the town over to a bar. We're going to get drinks. 
like for obvious reasons. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's go. And they were like, we'll go first and we'll save you a seat. I've known these people like one minute, right? So they go there, they save us seats at the bar. We get there, they're like pushing, the bar is like packed. They're like pushing people away to get to this outdoor area where they've saved us seats. They're like, can we buy you drinks? We're like, no, it's totally fine. We sit and we have drinks together. Then they leave, they go back to the ranch for the dinner. We come back about 15 minutes later, we walk up, there's a long line, but there's Michael and Jeannie and Kathleen. Hey, we're saving you a spot in line. We've got seats, they bring us in. Um, Afterwards, they're like, let's get your number. Let's text about life, you know, like let's get to know each other. We have dinner together. They wanna take the picture together. I mean, it was like, we became fast friends. And that's because nothing forges friendship faster than going through something together. Nothing forges friendship faster than going through something together. Sometimes it's a UTV ride gone horribly wrong. But other times it's things like a, a wedding, right? You've been in weddings, you've spent time with people you, ha- you don't know at all. Like you're a bridesmaid or a groomsman or something, you, you meet other bridesmaids and groomsmen, you become like fast friends and you're, you're like texting years later. Oh, we met at a wedding years ago. Maybe it's the birth of a child or walking through the loss of a loved one with someone. Maybe it's changing jobs and you walk into a brand new job and it's you just meet people because they're starting at the same day, same time, same day you are, and you meet someone and you become friends quickly. Changing cities, moving somewhere, and somebody else has just moved there too. Maybe it's helping someone move. That's a bonding experience. <laughs> you ever done that? Yeah, that's a bonding experience. Or even things like navigating a global pandemic. Doing that together, right? You can forge friendships really quickly. Walking through things like this with someone else will undoubtedly bring immediate intimacy to your relationship. That's why we became fast friends with Michael and Kathleen and Jeannie. It's why many of you sitting in this room and many of you watching online are friends with the people that you're friends with. You met and you went through something together. And it's why healthy churches provide some of the most fertile ground for facilitating deep relationships. They do because you go through things together. But while healthy, Jesus-centered churches can be a place that provides incredible help and deep relational wholeness, unhealthy churches are often places that inflict tremendous pain and cause deep relational brokenness. Now, if you've been at Restore for more than five minutes, you've probably heard us talk about problems caused by unhealthy churches and how instead of compounding the trauma, we here at Restore want to be a place that facilitates healing and wholeness. In fact, we just finished up this series called Summer Mixtape where we interviewed scholars and experts on things like racism and sexism and abuse and other issues plaguing the church in America. Those issues and others like them are actually causing people to leave church at unprecedented rates. Back in March of this year, just a few months ago, Gallup released an article entitled, U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time. These historic findings from Gallup were based on an annual poll that they have been conducting in America since the 1930s. Every year, they ask people if they are engaged with a religious organization. And in 2020, Gallup found that for the first time ever, less than half of Americans said they belong to a religious congregation. Less than half only 47%. Compare that with 55% just five years ago and 70% 20 years ago. There's a large group of people in this country who remain comfortable identifying as Christians, but feel completely uncomfortable being a part of a local church. You probably know someone like that. You may even identify with that group yourself. And here's the thing. 
I get it. Like, I, I really, really get it. I know this might sound crazy because I'm the pastor of this church. I'm literally up here preaching right now. But I've had a really hard time being a part of churches too. I was kicked out of church as a kid, not once, but twice. I've been kicked out of Sunday school classes, youth groups, summer camps, church networks, even entire denominations. My wife Amy often jokes that if I ever write a book, the title needs to be something like going from getting kicked out of churches to starting one. Maybe someday. Now, I've also walked away from churches myself, even from being on staff at churches, because the hurt, the pain was was too much. But do you know what's really crazy? I've never been kicked out or walked away from any of those places because I, I denied the historic Christian faith or any of the orthodox beliefs that accompany it. It most often happens because of deeply unhealthy people and policies. And if I'm being really honest... Sometimes it's because I haven't been able to deal with things in a healthy way either. And as I said, unhealthy churches and unhealthy church leaders can be places and people that inflict tremendous pain. There is no doubt about it. I've experienced it, and it's happened to folks that I love deeply. But, y'all, the opposite is true, too. A healthy church can be a place that provides help and healing and wholeness. I've experienced that. And I've seen people I love experience it too. Many of you right here, I've seen, experience that. So for all its problems and pain points this morning, I want to tell you why I'm a part of a church. Why I'm a part of a church. And what scripture says that healthy churches are supposed to look like. This is kind of the second talk in a little two-part series we started a couple of weeks ago on August 1st. That Sunday, I shared about why I'm still a Christian. Now, if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back. You can watch it on YouTube or listen to it on our podcast. But here's the gist. It's been kind of a tough few years to be a Christian in America. Not because of persecution or condemnation, but because so many representations of Christianity in our country are completely devoid of Jesus. Many of us are struggling to align ourselves with Christianity, not because we find its moral demands too arduous or its doctrine too outlandish, but because many of the Christians we encounter are so unlike Christ. Folks are walking away from Christianity in droves because they see people using Jesus to promote hate and condone oppression. And honestly, like I said, it's hard to blame them. There have been so many times over the last few years where I thought, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. But I don't think that's what it means to be a Christian. So even through questions, doubts, and struggles, I remain committed to faith in Jesus. Why? Why am I still a Christian? Well, because I have found life in Jesus, and I want other people to find it too. It's that simple. Now, that language is not original with me. It's actually how Jesus, God in the flesh, explained why he came. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's what he said in John 10.10. An abundant life both now and forever, is the promise of Jesus for anyone and everyone who follows him. Now, it's important to say, this is not a promise of material wealth or favorable outcomes. It is a promise of joy and hope and peace and beauty and forgiveness and love, no matter what the circumstances are that we happen to find ourselves in. This is also just not, not just a promise for after we die. Through Jesus, we have the ability to experience fullness of life now and forever. 
And because I have experienced life and love through Jesus in such beautiful ways, my desire is for everyone else to experience it too. But the reason for today's message is similar. I've experienced help and healing and beautiful relationships inside of healthy Jesus-centered churches. And I want everyone else to experience that too. So let's dive in. In part one of this little series, we focused on a letter of scripture called 1 John, and that's where we'll be again today. So if you have your Bible or your phone or something like that, if you're watching online, you want to click open a new tab, go to 1 John. We're going to be mostly in chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Now, John, if you don't know, the author of this letter, he was a follower and a friend of Jesus, probably actually Jesus' very best friend. And after Jesus died and rose again, John began starting church communities all over the Near East and helped give leadership really to first century churches kind of all over the place. This particular letter was written by John to a group of churches in what is now modern day Turkey that he helped start and was continuing to help lead. These churches were being ripped apart by a group of people claiming to be Christians but denying the truth about Jesus. So instead of practicing the way of Jesus by sacrificially loving others, this group was preaching hate, spreading lies, and perverting the good news of Jesus. John strongly denounces this practice of using the name of Jesus for sinful purposes. But even more than that, he encourages people to continue finding life in Christ and to continue coming together as a church family, to not give up that group that gathering. So last time we focused on his words to individual Christians as we talked about why I'm still a Christian. Today we're going to look at his encouragement to these churches. But before we do that, I want to cultivate some shared language together real quick. So what is church? What does the word church mean? Well, let's start with what church is not. So contrary to popular belief and even contrary to the way we often use the word, Church is not a building. Church is not a, a physical facility. We, we talk about it like that, right, a lot. I'm going to go to church, or my church is being renovated, you know, or things like that, right? We kind of refer to it as a facility, but, but we boil it down. We know that's not exactly what it is. Now, church is also not a members-only club, okay? It's not a members-only club, although often it gets treated that way. And then lastly, church is not a place you go to receive religious goods and services, Church is not a place you go to receive religious goods and services. This is probably what most people think of when they think of church. It's a place I go to receive religious goods and services. That's what church does not mean. In the New Testament, the word for church of any kind is called ekklesia. That's the Greek word in the New Testament. And it simply means assembly. It's assembly of people. It's a gathering of people for a shared purpose. So a Christian church... A church based on Christ is a community of people gathered around the person and work of Jesus. That makes sense? So that's our shared definition here for church today. A community of people gathered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what church is. Now the question becomes, what does a healthy church look like? So to answer that, I want to dive into John's letter here. Chapter 3, starting in verse 16. The verses will also be on the screen. John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid, his life, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
You should sit with that for a second. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Great passage. In it, John identifies two vitally important characteristics of a healthy church community. Here's what they are. Number one, a healthy church is a family. He calls them brothers and sisters. Number two, a healthy church loves like Jesus. And I put like Jesus for an important reason there. It's not just a healthy church loves, and we get to define love however we want. It's that a healthy church loves like Jesus. These are what I believe the two greatest indicators of what a healthy church is. It's a family, and it loves like Jesus. So let's begin by talking about the first one, the family. John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So the church is made up of siblings, right? We are all siblings together. The church is not meant to be hierarchical, with some people serving as parents and others serving as children, but with all of us being brothers and sisters under the headship of Jesus, under the headship of a pastor or denominational leader or anything like that. Brothers and sisters sitting in equality, serving under the headship of Jesus. The church is a family. Now, the most important question about any family is what? Who gets to be a part of it? Who gets to be a part of it? Now, many churches and pastors spend so much of their time talking about who to leave out of God's family. They build walls to keep people out. But the thing I love so much about Jesus is he just keeps tearing the walls down. He wants to make room for anyone and everyone. And here's the thing. We don't have to wonder who gets to be in God's family. Scripture has made it abundantly clear. In fact, on the day the very first church was inaugurated, Peter stands up and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not everyone who looks like me, not everyone who sins the same way I do, not everyone who believes exactly the, exactly the way that I believe. No, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. This is a huge reason people are leaving the church. Not if you know that. Yeah, huge reason people are leaving the church. They see churches claim that everyone is welcome. It's on a website, maybe even on their banner when you walk in, everyone is welcome. But then that same church turns around and tells someone they can't be a part because of their skin color or their political beliefs or their sexual orientation. But I got news for y'all. I got news for them. God's family is a radically inclusive and diverse group. It always has been and it always should be. That's why we say all the time here at Restore that no matter your age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, lifestyle, or background, you are welcome here and you are welcome in God's family. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and welcomed in to the family of God. And Peter is not alone in his proclamation of this truth. Here are just a few of the texts throughout Scripture that say the same thing. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. But to all 
who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I could keep going, but honestly, there are so many texts like this throughout Scripture that we would not have time to do anything else. That's how clear Scripture is about who gets to be in God's family. Anyone and everyone who wants to. And that's because from the very beginning, God's family has been designed to be radically inclusive and diverse. The first church was like that, and today's church should be like that. But even though we are all different, we are all siblings. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what my childhood churches used to say. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. They'd even greet each other. Brother this. Sister, not as much. More just brother this. But brothers and sisters in Christ. And as brothers and sisters, what should we do for each other? Whatever our siblings need. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as siblings together, what should we be doing for each other? Whatever our brother or sister needs. That is the call here. Because brothers and sisters love each other. Brothers and sisters sacrifice for each other. Brothers and sisters stand up for each other. We are a family. Laura, if Matt calls you and needs your help, what do you do? You be there, right? This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what John says. We show up for one another. We're there for each other. So that's the first characteristic of a healthy church community. We are radically diverse and inclusive family, and families show up for one another. Second characteristic is that a healthy church loves like Jesus. Look at verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Whew, that's a tough question. How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. If one of our siblings needs something, we are called to step up and help. As Laura said, we are called to be there. And if we see that a sibling is in need and we do nothing, Scripture says that the love of God is not in us. It's harsh, but it's simple. If we see a sibling in need and we choose to turn our backs and do nothing, we are not allowing the love of God to work in us and through us in the way that it was designed to. This is another huge reason why people are leaving churches. Because they see communities claim to be sharing the love of God with everyone, but then turn their backs on people in desperate need of help in their very own communities and cities. They pretend to love with words, but they are totally lacking in action, just as John said. I'm going to tell you a story. I was hanging out with a friend recently who hadn't had anything to do with church for most of his life because of this very thing. He told me a story about growing up in a church down in South Texas. This was a Catholic church. He was an altar boy. One day during altar boy training, the kids were working on praying with the prayer kneelers. You know what I'm talking about? Not if you know what I'm talking about, the prayer kneelers, right? If you've never been to a Catholic church, um, they're basically those little things at the base of every pew. They fold up and then they fold down so that people can kneel. They go down from the pew and kneel during the prayer service. My friend told me that on that day, they were practicing and kneeling, rising and kneeling, when all of a sudden his foot got stuck in one of the prayer kneelers. He tried to call out to the priest and let him know that he was stuck, but he was shh, 
shushed by the priest. Just keep praying, the priest said. Don't interrupt. He tried desperately to get his foot out before the other kids knelt back down, but he couldn't. And so when his peers knelt down to pray again, they began crushing his foot. He told me he started screaming out in pain, begging for the priest to help, but the priest just turned his back and told my friend to keep praying. Finally, the other kids realized what was going on and they got him out, but the priest never apologized, never even acknowledged what had happened. My friend was done with church after that. I tell you that story not just because of that story, but because it is so emblematic of what happens in unhealthy churches. People are screaming out in pain, often inflicted at the hands of the church, but the church just turns its back and tells them, pray harder. But I'll tell you something. That is not true of you guys. That is not true of you all. And I love that so much about this church family. You all sacrificially love and support people better than anywhere I have ever seen. Now, this is true all the time, every day, week in and week out, but especially when things get tough. Back in February, you might remember we had the worst winter storm Texas has seen in a century. And during that, you all stepped up in truly incredible ways. Let me tell you what you did. You opened up your homes to friends and neighbors who didn't have electricity. You boiled water, took it to people who didn't have any clean water. You bought extra groceries, gave them to people who need food. I'm not making these up. These are not broad statements. These are individual acts that you did that I know of. You made bag lunches and delivered them to frontline workers. You donated money so that our church could buy food and water and supplies for people in need. You cooked hot meals for people experiencing homelessness and ate dinner together. You jumped in your four-wheel drive vehicles and you delivered water to people who didn't have any and were stuck at home. You woke up in the middle of the night to go check your neighbor's pipes. You turned your homes into water refill stations. You took supplies to nursing homes where residents hadn't been able to get out or get help in days. Y'all don't just love with words. Y'all love with action. And I love that because that's what love truly is. I'm not saying that. That is what scripture is saying. That's what love is. Because listen, we don't get to make up a definition for love. Jesus defined it for us. Remember John's opening line in this passage? This is how we know what love is. You're wondering. You're wondering what love is. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. Jesus exemplified what love is supposed to look like by laying his life down. True love is sacrificial love. Let me say that again. True love is sacrificial love. That's how you know what it is. And in the family of God, true love is also extravagant love. Back, to chapter, back in chapter 2, John says this. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus laying down his life in sacrificial love, it isn't just for us. It's for the whole world. Jesus' love is sacrificial and extravagant. And the church's love should be both of those things too. You with me? 
Jesus' love is sacrificial and extravagant, and our love should be too. So this is what a healthy church is supposed to look like. This is my little definition for it. The church is a radically diverse and inclusive family who extravagantly shares the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's what the church is designed to be. A radically diverse and inclusive family who extravagantly shares the sacrificial love of Jesus. And that, my friends, is why I'm still a part of it. That's why I'm up here right now. Because when a church is healthy and working the way that Jesus designed it, I've never experienced anything like it in the world. We went through something crazy with Michael and Kathleen and Jeannie last week, and it brought us together for a couple of days. But the stuff I've walked through with so many of y'all in our church has made us family for a lifetime. And I know the same is true for so many of you, because we've walked through weddings and divorces, new relationships and breakups, births and deaths, promotions and job loss, pay raises and home evictions, opening up our homes to foster children and losing our children to the foster system, miraculous recoveries and devastating hospital stays, winter storms and global pandemics. And through it all, we have loved each other well. Not perfectly, not even close, but we've treated one another like family and we have loved each other sacrificially. But what would happen, y'all? What would happen if everyone had that same experience? Every single person that you know that is so frustrated by the church, that is so repulsed by the version that they're seeing of Christianity, what would happen if they found their seat at the table and they experienced the extravagant love of Jesus in a healthy church community? What would happen if everyone had that? The world would change. I'm not exaggerating. The world and everyone in it would be absolutely transformed if everyone had a place like this because people would find help and hope and healing in the midst of life's brokenness. They wouldn't be just cast aside or left alone. People would experience deep relationships that aren't going to fall apart or turn their backs when life gets hard. People would be adopted into a family who always steps up when they need them to, regardless of what their biological family looks like. People would come to understand just how much God loves them, not in spite of who they are, but because of who they are, and that they were made in his image, and that they are his children. And they would begin experiencing that abundant life that he offers. That's my hope. It's why I'm still a part of a church, and that's why our church exists. Let me pray for us. God, I am as always, blown away by the depth of your love, by the way that you care for us, by the abundance of grace and hope and joy and help that you have lavished upon us. God, I pray for those of us in here, those of us watching online, those of us who have experienced it before, God, 
that we would not hoard it, that we would not keep it to ourselves, but that we would invite anyone and everyone to come experience it. That you would bring abundance of life and healthy community to everyone in this world. God, and lastly, I pray, God, I desperately pray like I have so often before, like our staff does, like our leadership team does, I pray that Restore would be a place of deep and beautiful health. A place where people experience hope and healing. A place where people experience your love like never before that they would experience it spiritually in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls, God, but they would also experience it physically through the hands and feet of Jesus, us, as we come around each other, serve each other, help each other, as we see a brother or sister in need and we don't turn our back or tell them to pray harder, but we actually step up and meet it. I pray that we would always be a place like that. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.